we get into with a spoof? Money and time. Whatever necessary of either will need be needed, we'll win them they are. And we're not asking people to turn their cheek and nobody's got a right to slap you on either cheek. I tried to locate you, and they told me it's you in Michigan, and they said, well, he's a, he's like all the rest of the filthy rich. He's been this man. He's up in the lake. Up the north I also remember my dad taking me fishing and hunting. We would go up north and uh, with a lot of uh, his union associates and their young boys, and uh, we had a lot of wonderful times uh, uh, being with our with our fathers, and, uh, and it was it was really great. After 47 years, we have not really moved the needle as to any significant leads in the Jimmy Hoffa mystery. The FBI checked out some of the information provided by Frank Coppola about his father Paul's rendition of what happened to Hoffa's body. An affidavit was presented stating that an area along the border of the landfill owned by Philip Brother Moscato and Frank Coppola was the probable location according to Coppola's son Frank. It was checked out by obtaining a new search warrant to conduct a survey of that area by the exact means we covered in our Deja Vu episode last year. The FBI released to the press last November 2021 that they had surveyed the area and were analyzing the data. Last year, GPR technicians revealed curved and rounded shaped metal objects buried 12 to 15 feet below ground in the area described by Coppola. These objects are likely the very common steel drums, steel rims, and steel belted tires that are found in the thousands at these type of dump sites. Just this month, the headlines read, Search for Hoffa under Jersey City Bridge came up empty, FBI says. We already have disclosed to our listeners that the owners of this dump historically buried such things with toxic waste on property they did not own. They did not seem to care whether they stayed within their own boundaries. Photos from the 1970s and 80s show tires and refuse well beyond the acreage these two dump owners used for their business. It appears the EPA cleaned up a large percentage of the refuse throughout the area, but admitted that there were also adjoining properties they were continuing to monitor for toxic chemicals leading into the Hackensack River. Toxic refuse and tires were not only under the Pulaski Skyway, but they extended at times to both sides of the structure. We also remind our listeners that this location was suspected to have been used to dispose of a number of victims of the LCN. The original search warrant issued in December of 1975 was issued for the discovery of the physical remains of the Provenzano loan shark Armand Fogno, who disappeared in 1972. FBI informants revealed that others within the Provenzano crew may have been the ones responsible for Fogno's demise. Stephen Andretta was one person under suspicion for this crime. He and his brother Thomas were additionally summoned to the Detroit area to testify at a grand jury as to what they may know about another more famous disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. The suspected dump site in New Jersey was for Fogno in 1975, regardless of contrary news reports. But some, like the New York Times, noted the discrepancy. The judge overseeing the Michigan grand jury looking into the Hoffa disappearance put Stephen Andretta in Milan Federal Prison for contempt for not cooperating with the Detroit area Hoffa grand jury. But the FBI knew they could apply pressure on the Andrettas to come up with what they also knew about Hoffa's disappearance in Michigan. If they could use Fogno's murder and possible burial at Moscato's dump in New Jersey, then maybe they could shake up the Andrettas to tell them what happened to Hoffa in Michigan. It appears it worked because Stephen Andretta confirmed what he told one of the informants about a gateway transportation truck, a 55-gallon drum, or barrel, but not the location where Hoffa's body was buried. In 2006, the FBI acted on more information from Michigan and dug up the Hidden Dreams horse farm 
a good distance from the city of Detroit and further away from the Moccas Red Fox restaurant near the interstate highway hub going north. So the location of where Hoffa's body was sent has never been reliably confirmed. So, Steve, what is the likelihood that the LCN mob would dispose of bodies in steel drums? Well, Ron, uh, we've got themes. When we, when we look into the Hoffa situation, there are themes. Water, land, construction sites, those are all things that are common when we talk about Hoffa's body, how it was hidden. They could have done that right there in Lake St. Clair. You know, if they were going to get rid of uh, bodies, they knew how to do it. And they knew that their businesses were all being surveilled. So they weren't going to take them anywhere near those places. That's just not going to happen. And <laughs> to think they're going to go to some place where people are eating at a restaurant and grind up a body out in the back parking lot where they have a meat grinder or something or whatever the account was about the Raleigh house, the first one they had about, that's not going to happen either. Those are things that just aren't, they're not really feasible. People don't think when they say those things. Um, so the likelihood of putting bodies in steel drums, well, that, that can be, they're versatile. You can bury them on land, like I say, you can put them out in the water, you could put them in a construction site. And hardly anybody even pays attention to the darn things because they're everywhere. Now, they were, they had access to Lake St. Clair, like I said, and there were reports early on that Hoffa was, was somehow uh, sunk out there in Lake St. Clair. They had uh, dredges and everything else, the Corps of Engineers. They were acting on a tip from from a Roman Catholic priest who said that he took a confession from the person that actually killed Hoffa and disposed of his body out there in Lake St. Clair. They have access to all that stuff, so why would they do all these other things that people say with the steel 55-gallon drum when they could have easy take it to the water and do that? And nobody would, in July, you know, people are coming in and out of there in their boats and stuff, and uh, they're loading cargo on their boats, and they're taking stuff off their boats, and nobody's paying any attention to that. Like I say, that's a common thing to see. So, you know, uh, I'd have to say that they would have never really wanted to go and take off his body anywhere near one of their businesses, because then if you were rolling a drum around, uh, somebody would have remembered that. And um, so, no, and there wasn't any accounts like that. So what did happen? Uh, they wouldn't bury uh, or dispose Hoffa at that time of day without any kind of a huge risk in any populated area. They'd have to do something that looked rather routine or they'd do it under really good cover. So... 
from the informants' renditions of this, if gateway transportation was used from Stanton Barr's uh, steel division there, uh, he's the brother-in-law of McMaster who owned that horse farm. Thus, they went there and they wondered if maybe he was buried there. We, we look at that as a rendezvous point. Well, incidentally, so do the New Jersey people right now. They now believe that that's where the body was put onto a truck and got to New Jersey somehow. Uh, the drum idea, there's just so many of them on property that, that it's a good way of doing stuff. Now, some people go, oh, they didn't do that. Well, they did. They did a lot of things like that. And in 1975, they were getting rid of people using these drums. Like I say, they'd sink them in water. And so what happened this year? Well, Lake Mead out there, you know, uh, you're talking about Nevada and Arizona and the borders there. And, uh, you know, that's the largest man-made uh, lake we have in, in the United States. Uh, they, they've had droughts and the water level's gone down. And what do they find? Bodies inside of these steel drums. And when they were to do the autopsies on the bodies, they determined that they were, they disappeared and, uh, and were killed, I guess, time of death. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how the forensics will work, but whatever, they said around the mid-70s. And it even made some people think, well, gee, uh, they wouldn't have went all the way out there to near Las Vegas somewhere to got rid of them. <laughs> and there were some people that thought that, but what it was is that it was a common way of getting rid of somebody. It was so versatile. You, you, it, you could use just about any type of cover for it. And um, so it's not far-fetched. We had a guy call us up and he contacted us and said, uh, that the gateway headquarters of the parent company of that terminal that was in Detroit uh, was in La Crosse, Wisconsin. It was one of the largest trucking companies in the United States. And um, the Murphys owned it. Their family started it and had it in business for a century, for a hundred years. And uh, they competed with lots of people, including some people that they rubbed shoulders with that um, had to do with the central state's pension fund and how that money was going. The CEO was John Murphy. We'd write about him in a, on our, on our um, bio sketches. And um, that gets right back into the gateway story again. And who were these people? They were people that were in a competitive business and they were competing with businesses that the LCN had. And they were also competing with funds from the Central States Pension Fund. And that's all true. John Murphy was a trustee on the, on the pension fund. Uh, Walter F. Carey, his attorney, Albert Matheson, was also a trustee on the pension fund at that time. 
And of course, he worked for commercial carriers and other businesses that Walter Carey owned, another big businessman. And some of these businessmen had enough savvy and enough political clout that they were in direct competition with um, the interests of organized crime. And uh, some things actually created motive. Uh, and Hoffa was caught right in between. So the 55-gallon drum thing shook right out into a whole bunch of other things. And between 1970 and 1980 was when a lot of all this showdown took place. Um, One of the things these guys did, these big businessmen, is that they would schmooze with people in government and they'd get deals going. They'd get funding. They'd be in an advisory capacity to some, some point or another with business and economics and transportation. And they had an easier time of doing it than guys in, in the mob. <laughs> I mean, they had to do it much more on the sly. And so these big businessmen could merge in with the government powers and actually compete and even push back against any mob-owned businesses. And that's what happened with the, uh, the medical industries out of Pennsylvania. And we know some of the ones that were competing against the LCN. Now, this is the, this is, uh, the Buffalino crime family. Russell Buffalino, and he's a Hoffix suspect. And here he is with these business fronts like Medico Industries. And then all of a sudden they're starting to lose money because these other guys like Walter Carey and John Murphy that run these big mega trucking companies also have all this government clout. And so there's a tug of war going on between defense contracts. Well, Walter Carey even went one up on them because he became the advisor to the Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara. And they became close friends. Friends enough that even McNamara is mentioned in Walter Carey's obituary. And if you don't know who McNamara was, most people know him as the Secretary of Defense, but uh, before he was the Secretary of Defense under a couple of presidents during the Vietnam era, He was the president of Ford Motor Company. Before that, he was one of the the whiz kids that Howard Howard Hughes had recruited uh, to get business industry, uh, aircraft dynamics, everything. He was in that, that crowd. McNamara was. So he went from president of Ford Motor Company to secretary of defense. Then when he got out of that, He became the president of the World Bank. Now, how's that one, Ron? Can you get much higher up than the president of the World Bank when we're talking about money? Nope. Ah, I see, and that's what I'm trying to tell you. These motives are all power and turf struggles over money supplies, conduits of funds, and future profit margins. And when you get upset, you, you know, when you got a good thing going where you supply all of the ammunition for the Korean War, 
That's what the medical industries did. They were the largest defense contractors in the United States back then. And they're mob-owned. And that was all proven. And they had a silent partner. His name was Russell Buffalino. That's all been proven. And they had another silent partner. And this is the kicker. He was with the government. Dan Flood. Congressman Dan Flood. So see, they were wise to how this tug of war over this money worked. And it centered around these real powerful businessmen that could work that system a lot easier than they could. And um, so motives, motives are what's behind all of the things and all the components that drive where this money goes. So we have four groups of people. We have big labor. That would be Jimmy Hoffa back then, Dave Beck, uh, Jackie Presser, uh, all those people. Uh, and that, that's, that's the IBT union. But you could, you could use all the other unions as well, okay? And they're, they're always jockeying for more positional things. Also, Jimmy Hoffa himself became a businessman. He realized he could take some shortcuts and do some stuff. And um, what he did was he made a deal with Walter Carey, and uh, that's where the Test Fleet Company came from. And it's interesting because in that, that's what it eventually put Jimmy Hoffa in prison in the first place was being in business like that with Walter Carey. But no one knew it was Walter Carey. They, they always thought, well, it was the vice president, Burt Beveridge. Bert Beveridge, <laughs> okay. Well, Bert got in trouble in 1962 with Hoffa as a co-defendant in the test fleet trial because Bert is the one that was cutting the checks to get this going. Albert Matheson, the guy that was on the pension fund that was the attorney, he eventually got indicted for things that happened on the pension fund. Kerry, at the same moment in time, was uh, he became the uh, president of the United States Chamber of Commerce, and he was an advisor to Kennedy and Johnson. So he was well insulated and higher up than even those other guys. But yet he could tell his friend, Robert McNamara, hey, these dudes are mob guys, and, you know, why don't you throw some of that to, like, Roy? You know what I'm talking about when I say Roy? Roy Fruhoff. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. In fact, you can get documents where they're bidding on things, medical industry and Fruhoff trailer, you know, it's, and, um, so that there was stuff going on. It was competition. And Kerry was the one that was a kingpin that could move things around. Kerry also moved things around with Dan Flood because both of them were intensely interested in the Panama Canal as a source for transportation, shipping, commerce, that kind of thing. And uh, one of the last things that Dan Flood did was he passed, uh, you know, some laws and stuff to protecting the, the canal. And so he had to work with Walter Carey. Carey was very insulated, hard to, hard to get at, yet he threw money around. And he knew all the right people to do it. 
and nobody really knew it. They just, he, he, he had the, the ability to just come in and out of things and no one really paid much attention. But there he was, right in the middle of all of those things. And these were the guys that probably gave La Cosa Nostra and their businesses more fits than anybody else. Because these two, these two guys, like John Murphy and, and Walter Carey, were friends with Jimmy Hoffa. So they're already in with la the labor power. And they're also in with the government. And they're big-time CEOs. So it kind of leaves the mob on the short end of the stick. And when, when, you, when you get somebody mad at you, like Russell Buffalino, well, he's not going to forget. And so there's motives there against people like that. We contend that, that Hoffa's body was actually used as a way to shake people like John Murphy and Walter Carey down and to put them out of business. If that's true, then what happened after Hoffa disappeared? What happened? History shows us what happened and proves that's what they did. They actually did that. And it's all a matter of history. It's all recorded in court cases. But the funny thing about it is, is back in 1962 when Walter Carey's vice president there was taking all the heat for the test fleet thing, Kerry didn't get away with it because he had to go to trial. He had to go to trial in New York over a labor issue with Jimmy Hoffa. They were both co-defendants in another case in New York in 1962. Walter F. Kerry and Jimmy Hoffa and a couple of other guys. And this had to do with welfare and pension funds out of... Uh, operating out of New York, but involving, I think, 11 other states. And a lot of this people don't know either. But it's a case that's it's uh, very well documented. And so the tug of war was going on. There were motives. It centered around a lot of businesses. And what happened to the mob over the years is they began to go from you know, these jawbreakers and these, this muscle and these enforcers. And they, they slowly began to become better businessmen. And they slowly began to master what we would call white-collar crime. And they were moving in that direction. And, and a guy like Russell Buffalino, he, that was the kind of thing that he really wanted to do. And... Um, controls the money. Okay, so we understand that steel drums are used as a way to get rid of victims of the mob. We also know that the LCN was in competition with big business owners, government, and big labor. It was all about who was going to rake in the most profit and who was covering the most turf. So Steve, you mentioned that Jimmy Hoffa had been in business with some of these big businessmen. When he got out of prison, did he get involved with any profit-making schemes or big businesses? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Ron. And yes, he did. He, when he got out of prison, he, he did have his eyes fixed on maybe reclaiming the crown to the Teamsters Union. He also knew that there were some provisions that said that he couldn't really run for union office of any kind until March 6th, 1980, because his sentence was commuted, but it was still held against him. He had a combined uh, from fraud and from the test fleet uh, Taft-Hartley violation and the bribing of jurors in that case, uh, 13 years. And so if you added that up, it'd be over with uh, on the 6th of March, 1980. That's a long time to wait. And he, wa- he was shooting for 1975, 1976. Before he got out of prison, he was visited by his lawyer, Dave Previant. Now, Hoffa had a lot of lawyers. He, he had all kinds of them. Um, but Previant was... Uh, represented the Teamsters Union itself. And he was the one that was entrusted to go inside the prison and then ask uh, Hoffa if he was going to try to run right away before he'd even had his sentence commuted. And he, he really wanted more time. And so his opportunity came and, and went. And so he had to shoot for 1976. Well, in the meantime, once he's out he starts talking to businessmen again and uh, building himself uh, a pretty good nest egg. Now, he had something to use, too, from that. He had the profits that he made from the test fleet company, and he made in the millions from that. And he had reinvested that money into small businesses. (laughs) And they were the kind of thing like, well, Chucky O'Brien, you got to go up and fix up some old dilapidated buildings up there in the Upper Peninsula and make it into a, a fish and hunt club. We'll lease it out to Teamsters members and we'll make our money back on it. So they'd purchase all this land and they did this. They did it up in the Upper Peninsula, not far from Jimmy's cabin on Lake 13. And we went and visited that last fall. We went and visited the whole area. And um, so he was making smaller purchases of real estate. Some of them went bust. Uh, he was involved in a the, uh, in one in Florida, and it, it just went right back on top of him. He lost on that. But he was looking to make maybe bigger things than that. And um, he finally, uh, after he got out, uh, he missed his opportunity that the uh, lawyer previous had talked to him about but he found out another opportunity in eastern Pennsylvania. Now, when he was going to, let's say, buy stock for a business or whatever, everybody knew who Jimmy Hoffa was. So he'd either have a representative or he'd even have, just like he did with the test fleet thing, you know, a different name. You know, he just wouldn't do it all in his name because he he just couldn't trust the system. They weren't ever going to forgive him from this, that, or the other thing. So this is what he did in a more of a clandestine way. He just, that's how he did his stuff. And he got into uh, the anthracite coal business. (laughs) 
And um, the funding came from things like from originally from test fleet, but it came from other sources too. Uh, looks as though some of it came out of the pension fund. All right. And he bought a controlling stock in one of these companies. And people didn't know about it. And uh, now this, we're talking about big money here. All right. We're not talking about just a smaller piece of real estate. In fact, when they were looking into the great American coal company and and all of the, the ups and downs of this thing, and that's what he invested in. Um, they couldn't decide for years what they were going to do with it, with all of the land, the machinery, the stock, the whole thing. And there are so many people involved in it. Uh, and judges and lawyers were all over this. And this same lawyer, Dave Previant, he was one of them that was involved. Now, but he got involved in it in, after he got out of prison. And it, I'll tell you that when they started looking at just the worth of the real estate itself, just as real estate or the equipment that they had that could be used maybe by other mining companies, it, it, it was... We're talking about figures like $500 million. $500 million? That, that, and that's staggering. Now, this is, this is back in the mid-'70s. And he was right in the middle of this thing. Now, like I say, not that many people knew about it. But he was going for the gusto. He was trying to, I think, break the mold he was going to try to be a really successful businessman as well as the power behind the teamsters union <laughs> and um he had some good teachers but by that time the ones that had uh gotten into trouble with jimmy hoffa like walter f Carey or burt beverage or uh, Roy Fruhoff uh, and some of the others, um, th they were either dead or they just didn't get along with them anymore. And um, that's how that was. So he was more on his own with his own people. And um, they were going to do some transactions there in eastern Pennsylvania on the stock and on for the great American uh, coal company. And right in the middle of it, just a few weeks before uh, the transaction, somebody got wind that Hoffa had controlling stock. And three weeks later, Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. So I know that a lot of people like to just talk about the Central States Pension Fund is one of the reasons why... They wanted, you know, it'd be, it would be easier to deal with Frank Fitzsimmons, let's say, than Jimmy Hoffa. And so that's why he got whacked. You know, that's what these people say. Um, well, there's something to that, I guess. But there was other things, too, because guess who was competing for the eastern Pennsylvania coal industry? And they had their sights on that. Buffalino. There you go. 
And that is true. Now, the FBI looked into this, but I'll tell you the people that really looked into it was the Pennsylvania Bureau of Investigation of their state police unit. And um, you can get into their files uh, a lot easier than you could, let's say, the FBI files. Well, people just don't look at that stuff, but I guess we do. <laughs> but anyway, um, and enough people got, a, got wind of it that it started getting picked up by the press back then that there was something going on. Um, about a month after Hoffa disappeared, Hoffa Jr. and Hoffa's son-in-law, Robert Crancer, paid uh, the uh, great American company a visit to try to transfer stock into the Hoffa estate, in which opened up this gigantic can of worms. And it stayed in court for many, many, many years. It still hasn't been all, everything isn't resolved on that even yet. And not everybody even knows where all the money went. But we're talking about business here now. And so, yeah, yeah. Hoffa got out of prison and he didn't just have his eyes set on leading, you know, the IBT. No, he was... He was going for it. He was going for big-time money. Um, and that may have been part of the motive of why he also disappeared when he did. You know, they could have, they could have killed Jimmy Hoffa any time they wanted to. So why did they do it when they did it? I'll tell you what. It, there's several reasons that why it would have something to do with Russell Buffalino and the timing of this. One was that stuff that Jimmy Hoffa knew about Russell Buffalino got published in Time magazine about his involvement with uh, the government in a deal with the CIA to knock off, you know, the Cuban dictator Fidel Castro. And they, that was published in just just a month before Jimmy Hoffa disappeared and, and, and Buffalino's name was there. So some people surmised that was enough for Buffalino to say, well, this guy's ratting on me or whatever. So he's got to go. <laughs> and that's, that, if you study Buffalino, he, 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 didn't, uh, he didn't take too kindly to people that were double-crossing him at all, no matter who they were. But then we, we add the history of the medical industries and who was involved with that, and a former business partner with Hoffa, and that was Kerry. And then we add now the anthracite coal venture because medical industries and Buffalino had their eyes on that too. They were all competing. And that's in the files. That's all true. And when they tried to transfer stock and Hoffa had 50%, uh, just a few weeks later, Hoffa disappeared. And then a month after that, here's Hoffa Jr. and his brother-in-law down there trying to iron out the stock. Well, then after that, see, it was all about liquidating that whole company and how much profits they would make by closing the company down. And that's where the big money was. They already knew it was probably not a great... Uh, lasting business venture. But if they 
got control of it and then pieced it away by shutting it down, they could make millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. If you start reading about it, I mean, you're just going to, there's just so many people involved in this thing, mafia, business people, and government, that it's astounding. And yet very few people know about it. And now, um, I might say that uh, if, you've, if you've kind of made Russ mad at you twice in one month, um, well, maybe that's a good time for you to disappear. It's coitance. <laughs> yeah. So that's what, I, that's what I think on that one, uh, Ron. And uh, that's just for our listeners to know. Well, either one reason or another, there are plenty of motives for making Hoffa disappear at the time he did. Is there anyone out there that we know about that would support this idea of big business ventures being the motive for taking out Jimmy Hoffa? Yeah, Ron, I mean, we've, we touched on some of the ones that uh, are becoming known. There are some people doing research right now uh, seeing that there was uh, much more of an extent uh, between relationships of state and local government officials in Pennsylvania, in Tennessee, and in Michigan, okay, where deals were made and they revolved around profit margins and stocks and things like that. And that's being looked at. And the people that are looking at that are people that are actually attorneys right now. And there's names there. I'm not going to mention them right now on, the, on our episode here, but there are people coming out with books and stuff like that on that now. So we're not the only ones that are saying this, but some of the stuff I'm saying, we are. <laughs> we are. And I might add, I might add that... Uh, we got uh, notified uh, a year ago that something was going on about the uh, tie with the, uh, the legal representatives and the, the attorneys. And someone working for this firm who was part of uh, the law team, the legal team for Jimmy Hoffa, verified that were correct about what happened to him and how he disappeared and where he is. The only difference is, is that their construction site differs from the one that we mentioned, but it's all up north in the UP of Michigan. And these are people that out of the blue confirm that, that were working as attorneys with Jimmy Hoffa. Now, we have people that have given us a lot of information and testified to a lot of things. We know who they are. We've been waiting. We have a list of them. They should be interviewed by the Department of Justice. Well, I know the Department of Justice has got their hands full with so many things now, you know. And so... Why would we want to bother with Jimmy Hoffa stuff now when there's all this other stuff that doesn't have anything to do with Jimmy Hoffa that they need to take care of, 
right? Wrong. <laughs> Absolutely wrong. <laughs> yeah, because I'm going to throw this one at you. We just had a big pandemic. We called uh, a number of things that I wouldn't want to stay over the air. <laughs> but, but a lot of money was conjured up and spent because of this pandemic. And um, 47 years later, present time, we just got a major kickback as far as huge amounts of money that came from the COVID relief and were channeled um, to the central state's pension fund through our government. You know, many public pensions have a history of poor stewardship, and central state's pension fund is one of them. Increasing benefits in good times and failing to make their pensions and contributions when the economy turns downward. And whatever Congress does during these times, uh, they'll turn away unionized public employees when it's already, you know, a, a thing about whether they're going to be bailed out or run private sector pensions, uh, that kind of thing. But what happened with the central states, how it began and how large it got and how corrupted it got, and that the uh, ERISA law was passed in 1974 and it began to change how these huge funds would float well from that time all the way until now we're still dealing with the central states pension fund the teamsters pension fund and it's a lot more expensive uh, using taxpayers dollars to bail out pension plans is almost unheard of Previous proposals to rescue the dying multi-employer employer plans that uh, call for the Treasury to make them 30-year loans and not send them no-strings-attached cash. That's what they would do. Other efforts have been called for the plans to cut some of their people's benefits to conserve their dwindling money. Uh, the Central States Pension Fund was due to go broke by 2025. That involves an awful lot of people. Without any assistance, gonna go broke just three years from now. And many of the beneficiaries had already suffered cuts in their checks uh, as a result of a 2014 law that allowed pension trustees to approve reductions in an effort to remain solvent. This account of the Teamsters' drive to save retirement plans for millions of pensioners is drawn from interviews with several of the union officials, congressional sources, and the public record. It begins with one Hoffa, James R. Hoffa, the late Teamsters president that we are finding out about Hoffa. We find Hoffa in many ways. And the Central States Pension Fund that he started and it ends with a year-long campaign by his son, James P. Hoffa, Jr., to work the levers 
of influence in Washington to salvage the retirement money of union members. And that's exactly what happened. Now, there's an article by Jonathan Allen. There's another one from Forbes. They knew, they knew that this was coming anyway, even before the pandemic, that something was going to have to happen. But, but our current president basically worked out a deal with James P. Hoffa Jr. And a large amount of this, this funding to float these pension funds, and of course Central State's pension fund is one of the biggest ones, um, coming right from the taxpayers. It's a bailout. Now, there's plenty of pension funds that don't need a bailout. They're responsible. They, may, they, they float really well. And then there's those that have, have a long history of all kinds of corruption. And, and we could really get into some stuff on that. We don't have time. And who wants to talk about all that? But the bottom line is, is that the central state's pension fund is being bailed out by you and I, by the taxpayers. No strings. It's going to be good till 2050. How about that? And I, I'll be, if I'm still kicking around, I'll be pretty old guy. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, and it came right out of the American Rescue Plan from President Biden. So don't, don't tell me this stuff isn't relevant. It started with one Hoffa, and it's now with the one that just retired. Now, Jimmy Jr. there was looking after his people, and he took care of business through the government. See, the same operation is going on like it was, only it's much more refined now, much more white-collar, much more political. And here we go. So we're talking $83 billion from the American Rescue Plan Act has been allocated um, to float some of these pensions. And um, I suppose it's going to make a lot of people happy that, uh, you know, that they, their pensions aren't going to go bust in 2025. <laughs> You know, I mean, I understand that, but the taxpayers are the ones that are having to foot the bill again. And it was worked out between Hoffa Jr. And then what did he do? He retired. <laughs> Good time to retire. <laughs> and I mean, I'm sure it was probably was. But for those people that think it's not relevant, I mean... President Biden signed a $1.9 trillion American rescue plan, and he's got 80-plus billion going to pension funds to bail them out that have histories of really not doing very well with their decision-making. You know, it's going to affect, a, you know, a million or two retirees that are in these faltering pension funds. And they'll probably really like it. But you have to remember, these are, we're the ones, the taxpayers are the ones that are footing that bill. 
So if there's somebody out there that doesn't think that the Hoffas and this disappearance and this money and big business and government uh, aren't relevant, well, they better look to see where their tax dollars are being spent because it certainly is. And it makes me motivated to really get to the bottom of what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. We know it had something to do with this stuff. And I think we're on it. We're just waiting for somebody in the Department of Justice so that we can talk to them and give them some names of people that they can interview and follow up on. That's all we're asking. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to bonus episode number six, Getting Down to Business. We would encourage you to check out our website, findinghoffa.com. You can become a Finding Hoffa supporter by visiting the support tab on our website. Please subscribe and rate our podcast and follow us on Facebook at Finding Hoffa Podcast. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned.